Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. It's so good to be with you and to get to open up the scriptures together. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. And if you're using one of the Genesis journals that we've handed out, or if you would like one, they're in the back. It's on page 124 of those Genesis journals. And we are looking this morning at God appearing to Jacob in a dream. We're continuing our God of Abraham series. You'll, I mean, it's, so we're coming off the God of Abraham series into a series in Genesis. And you'll remember that we are children of Abraham by faith in Christ Jesus. And so all of the promises that God made to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob actually belong to you in Jesus because you who were once formerly far off and a stranger to the covenants of promise have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we are reading these promises not from a distance, but as a very recipients because of Christ Jesus. So today, God is once again extending his covenant to an offspring of Abraham, and he does it in a dream. So look with me at Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give to me, I will give a full tenth to you. So I want to give you a, a snapshot of where we're going this morning and then pray before we dive in together. So we're going to look at an overview of the scenes of this chapter and give you a bit of context. And then we're going to look at the connection to Jesus and how Jesus uses this passage to speak of himself. And then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at who God is for us in Christ Jesus in view of this passage. Let's pray together. Father, you are 
the holy God. Lord, what a, what a gift. I was just thinking with Elijah before the gathering. What a gift it is that this gets to be so regular that we get to meet with the people of God before a holy God with an open Bible. Lord, we don't want that to get lost on us just because it is gloriously ordinary and regular, but it is marvelous. And I pray that you would give us open hearts, God. Would you give us open ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church? Lord, we are unworthy of the revelation of God. But we pray that you would speak and that we would hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. So leading up to this moment, Genesis chapter 27, Eric preached and talked about how Jacob had deceived uh, his father in order to obtain the blessing. And then at the beginning of chapter 28, Isaac blesses Jacob and he sends him out to his father's house, to his, really the, the family of his wife, Rebecca, to go find a wife. But so Jacob's leaving the land of promise to go find a wife. But later in Genesis 35, when God reminds Jacob of the events of this chapter, he says, I am the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing your brother Esau. So it adds some context to this that he wasn't just going towards a wife. He was actually fleeing Esau, the, the brother that was breathing murderous threats, and he was on the run. So Jacob is alone. He's on the run. He's leaving the land of promise. Yes, he's going to look for a wife, but he's even lying down without a place to stay, without really knowing what lies ahead. And you could just imagine that he's alone with his guilt of this great deception that he had just done. And we, I don't, you can't, that's conjecture that he's feeling guilt. But who in here doesn't know what it's like to be alone with your thoughts in the aftermath of some great sin against God, some great sin against one of your brothers. Regardless, he's on the run for his life. And in this first scene, God appears to Jacob in a dream and extends his covenant to him. This is very much like chapter 26, where we saw the extension of God's covenant of grace that he had made with Abraham to his son Isaac. And Isaac entered into a covenant that was made before he was ever born, not because of his own doing, not because of his performance, but because of the God of grace who determined to do good to him and determined to extend his relationship with him. And so now, for the first time in Jacob's life, that's happening for Jacob, where God appears to him and he says, now, instead of to Isaac, he says, I'm the God of Abraham. Now he comes to Jacob and says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac. And now I'll be your God as well. And th there is... In the beginnings of this scene, behold, mentioned three times in the description. And this is meant to, to capture your attention and cause you to look deeper. It's saying, look, there, there was a ladder set up between earth and heaven. Look, behold this thing. And look again. The angels of God were ascending and descending on this stairway that God had set up. And look again. The Lord was at the top of this ladder. And it was the Lord who was speaking. And then God from heaven, where he had come to Jacob by the revelation of heaven to him, 
he echoes the language almost verbatim that he had promised to Abraham from Genesis chapter 13, where he promises Abraham the land, the coming offspring or the seed, and the blessing. Now, we know and we've already preached through this that these promises belong to you in Jesus. So there was an immediate fulfillment, but there's also this ultimate fulfillment in Christ that he promises to Jacob, I'm going to give you this land to the north, south, east, and west. This land will belong to you and to your offspring. But ultimately, we know that Abraham and his descendants weren't looking to this land as the ultimate land of promise, but they were seeking a homeland. Hebrews 11 says that they desired a better country that is a heavenly one and that God has prepared a city for his people. So God is promising to Jacob. He's extending him the same promise that ultimately will be a a new covenant promise, a, a bounty for us. I'm giving you this land. This land belongs to the nation of Israel now, but ultimately for us, it's the promise of a coming land, a better country. He promises him this offspring. He says, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Most immediately, that's referring to the physical offspring of Israel, where their offspring would be numerous like the stars of heaven. But ultimately, it refers to those who would share the same faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the coming Christ, where Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 29, in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and Jacob's. Heirs according to promise. And he also promises Jacob in this passage, echoing Genesis 13, this blessing that through his offspring, God would bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. We know that God has blessed his people to be a blessing, but ultimately that's referring to the blessing that would come through the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Christ Jesus. Paul, later in Galatians 3, will point back to these passages showing that the the references to offspring or to the seed that is promised here is always in the singular. So he's not talking about to all this multiple offspring, but specifically to the coming offspring, Christ Jesus, would God bless all the nations of the earth. And so now we see, as we've been looking from Genesis 3 forward, God promises the coming Christ who would crush the head of the serpent, and then you find out it's going to be the offspring of Abraham. Now we know it's the offspring of Isaac, and now more specifically, the Christ is coming through Jacob's line. And then you look in verse 15. This is the first behold out of the mouth of God. So we've been hearing from the narrator, behold, there's this stairway. Behold, the angels of God are ascending and descending on it. Behold, God is at the top of this stairway and he is speaking and now from the mouth of God in verse 15 God says to Jacob behold look Jacob I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you now one commentary I read said that the construction of the Hebrews here is is really to drive home the immediacy of this promise. So it's not just that God's extending to him his promises that he made to his father, but even now in this moment, when you're fleeing and on the run for your life, when you're, when you're leaving the land of promise, God is saying, I even now am with you and I will not leave you. I will bring you back to this land in the midst of all of your unsurety and to the midst of 
your fear, God extends a relationship to him and says, I will be with you. This is covenant relationship. He's making covenant promises to him, saying, I promise you, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. This is a huge promise. Wherever you go, I won't leave you. And this is coming to Jacob in the aftermath of one of the greatest failures of his life. And in, in running for his life into most likely the biggest fear of his life. And God is coming to him and setting his love on him by, not because of anything that Jacob had done, but because of God's good pleasure to set his love on him and to bless him. Wherever Jacob goes, God's steadfast love would not depart from him. And this promise that he would be with him until he'd done all that he promised wasn't him putting a timeline on his presence. He wasn't saying, I'll be with you until I do all that I promised, and then I will leave you. It's this beautiful assurance of God that he will be with him always, and he, he would not abandon his promises. He would, his faithfulness would outlast Jacob's sojournings. It would outlast this journey. It would outlast his fears, and it would outlast all that was yet undone of the promises of God. And he's making these, if you, if you think about it, this is the greatest blessing that God could give someone. The promise of a place, of belonging, the promise of a family that's growing and that is a blessing, and then the promise of Jesus coming through your line and being the salvation of all the earth and the promise of his presence wherever he could go. And it comes to him in a place where he had nothing. He was nothing, and he was on the run for his life. And in steps God's promise that he would be with him and he would keep his good word. And all the fulfillment of God's promises would rest on God's faithfulness and on God's presence in Jacob's life, not on Jacob's performance. And so scene two is Jacob's response to this. Now, I think it's really important that you see that the first response that Jacob has is fear. Read this in verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, this language might get lost on us because we think everything's awesome, right? This is an awesome sports game. This is an awesome cup of coffee. But he's saying that the terror of God came on him. He, he went down, he went to sleep fearing for his life because he's on the run from his brother. And he woke up terrified of God because God was there. The fear of God is a mark of a genuine encounter with God. If, if we approach God and we lose sight of who he is, it is easy to have a cavalier approach to God. Maybe because of the blessing and the shield that we have in Jesus, we lose sight of the dangers outside the ark or just how massive God is, just how good God is, just how much of a difference there is between the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. But Jacob saw it. And he woke up terrified. And you see, this is the response throughout the Bible of what happens when sinful man meets a holy God. There is a fear that comes on man. The very first time that sinful man encountered a holy God in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam do? He said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He felt the shame of his sin, the guilt of his sin, and he, he, he sensed the presence of a holy God coming near, and he was terrified, and he hid. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush hid his face when God revealed himself to him because he was, quote, afraid to look at God. God later would tell Moses, man cannot see my face and live. But all throughout the scripture, and I, I encourage you, go back and listen to a message. Was it maybe 15 months ago, Eric, of seeing Jesus? And Eric walks through just all these different instances of people seeing the glory of God or the presence of God, and they fall on their face like a dead man. Daniel, Ezekiel, John, all throughout. And there's this one instance where Gideon sees who he perceives to be the angel of the Lord, and he says, alas, I've seen the angel of the Lord. And God looks at him and says, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Which is the complete mercy of God. Because when Gideon saw God, he realized, oh, I'm a dead man. I should be a dead man. And God says, peace be to you. Which is exactly what he says to us in the gospel. Now, in Christ, we have the privilege of beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But it's no less glorious, and he is no less holy. And... This is the God who revealed himself to Jacob and extended by his grace covenant to him, relationship to Jacob. And Jacob woke up with a terrified awe because when he went to bed, he didn't know God was there. And when he woke up, he had been in the presence of God and he had heard the voice of God. And so what does Jacob do? But he responds with a vow. He, he takes this stone and he anoints this stone and he calls it the house of God, and he names it the house of God, Bethel in Hebrew, and he, he makes a vow to God. It's the first vow that's mentioned in the Bible. Vows in the Old Testament were usually made to God in distress. It's this mark of desperation and dependence on God and a surrender to some specific honoring of God once delivered. So you see this even like with Jonah in the belly of the great fish, and he's making this vow to God from the belly of the whale. Um, you see people doing this now. God, if you get me out of this, then, and usually it's some bribery of God trying to twist his arm, but the ways that God has designed for vows to operate is they're, they're these gifts to God of, God, I'm, I may be seeing my relationship to you in a new light because of my need, and I want to offer to you this gift. I want you. I need your deliverance. And if you do this, then I will worship you in this way. So you see this in Psalm 65, verse 1. David writes, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. It's, it's appropriate and in keeping with praise to offer to God a vow of, God, I will worship you in this way. I will give you this gift. In Psalm 76, verse 11, David again says, Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. So you see parallel with each other, vows and gifts. That this was a gift that Jacob was giving to God in light of the greatness of God's 
Revelation. Now, you need to be mindful in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes that it would be better not to make a vow to God than to make a vow and not keep it. Don't be quick to offer vows to God, but to do what you say because we'll see that God requires it of him. Later, he comes to Jacob and he reminds him of his vow and calls him back to this place to do what he promised. But it's, it's hard to discern what's going on in Jacob's heart in this moment because we know that Jacob to this point has been the deceiver. He's, he's the posturer. He's the one who has, he's gripping his brother's heel from his mother's womb. He's, he's working Esau out of his birthright, and then he postures and steals the blessing. But here it seems that he has this genuine, his revelation from God, and he genuinely repeats back the promises of God to God and wants to worship him appropriately and actually have God be his God. But at first reading, it seems like it's conditional, right? God, if you, and then he names all the things that God just now said he was going to do. But he adds in there kind of a sweetener to the deal. So everything that he says is everything that God promised. I'll be with you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land in peace. And Jacob adds, if God does these things and he gives me food and clothing, then he'll be my God. And I will come back to this place, and this will be the house of God, and I'll give him a tenth of everything that he blesses me with. And I think this is a genuine act of worship. But it's, he, he's also, uh, you can see, just spiritually immature. There's so much uh, of Jacob still left in this man that the coming chapters we'll see is God purging this man of his self-life, of who he is. And so Jacob's still bringing to God all of his promises of what he can do. And he's doing it as an act of worship to give God this vow. But it reminds me of Peter at the transfiguration of Jesus, where there's this massive revelation from God. And Peter says, Jesus, look, quick, I'll make tents for you and Moses and Elijah. And there's this voice from heaven that says, this is my son, listen to him. But in that moment, Mark says, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And I think there's an element of that here with Jacob where he's repeating back to God his promises and he's saying, God, I will do this thing and you will be my God if you keep all these promises. I, I believe you for them, but there's still this condition and this bit of posturing from Jacob and not the fullest revelation of what was really happening. He, he anoints this rock and he says, this is the house of God and this will be the house of God. And what Jacob could not see that we have the privilege of seeing on this side of Christ is that ultimately that was not the house of God. The significance of this dream and this stairway was that it was his coming offspring who was to be the stairway to heaven and who was to be the means of the household of God. And that is our connection to Christ from this passage and transitioning to so the next section of our message is that Christ is the true stairway to heaven. The stairway in Jacob's dream represented this gracious condescension of heaven to man. It was God coming into the midst of Jacob on the run, and he's graciously bringing revelation, and there's this heaven to man, and God revealing himself 
And in John 1, Jesus makes this stunning claim to deity, and he uses his imagery from Genesis chapter 28 to do so. Nathaniel had just come to him and marveled at Jesus because Jesus said he saw him under the fig tree. And Jesus said, do you marvel and believe on me because you, I said I saw you under the fig tree? And then he says to Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So here in this one verse, Jesus is making these claims to deity. One, he's referring to himself as the son of man, the one prophesied of by Daniel who would receive this everlasting dominion and a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And he's also saying that he is the stairway to heaven. You will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. I am the son of man. And just like the angels ascended and descended on this stairway to heaven, I am the way to God. I am the true door of the sheep. He is the true gate of heaven. So Jacob marveled and says, surely this is the house of God. Surely this is the gate of heaven. And but what we can see in Christ is that Jesus is the place where God dwells. And he is the way to an open heaven. He is the way into a covenant relationship with God. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jacob anointed a rock and called it the house of God. But Jesus is the truly anointed rock on whom God would build his church, the, the cornerstone of the household of faith. And all who come to him become part of the true house of God. Individually, we're called temples of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, we are called a, a place, a dwelling place of, for God by his spirit. Living stones being built together into his church. So it was always through Christ that the promised blessings of Abraham would come. I think about it a little bit, and I'm sure the guys will tell me if this is um, theologically correct to, to use this, but I, I think about it a little bit like the promises were made on credit. Now, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, so he, these promises were purchased, but they were realized at the cross. And so all these promises that were made to the patriarchs and to Israel came to them on credit. And then Jesus paid them at the cross. He was always the way to the realization of all these promises. And he made these promises available to us. And Hebrews says that Jesus opened up this new and living way through his own flesh. That this is what he came to do. was to establish this stairway between heaven and earth and to create a way for mankind to have fellowship with the living God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So this is what God was doing in Christ, reconciling the world to himself and creating a way for sinful man to be brought into the presence of God. And this is why Jesus came, the righteous for the unrighteous. He, he came to be both God and man so that he could have, as it were, a foot on earth as man and as God established in the heavens so that he can mediate for you. And even right now, mediate on the basis of his blood. He's made atonement for your souls. 
And he is even right now actively ministering before God on the basis of his blood and has opened up this new and living way that is permanently opened for you. That's why at the cross, we're, we're, we're celebrating this this week. At the cross, the curtain that separated the presence of God from sinful man was torn in two from top to bottom. As Jesus cried out, the debt is paid in full, and now there is a way, a stairway that is open for you. And it's not a stairway for you to climb by your efforts, but one that Jesus has opened and has established by his. In Hebrews chapter 4, it's a passage we come back to often. It's glorious. We have to be reminded of it again and again. The writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has, get this, passed through the heavens. That's a reference to Jesus passing through the heavens with his own blood to sprinkle the heavenly copies of what the earthly altar and the earthly tabernacle were just copies of. And he sprinkled the heavens with his own blood where his blood speaks a better word for us than the blood of Abel. And it cries out, forgiven. Since we have this high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace through Christ, on the basis of his sinless life and on the basis of him mediating on the basis of his blood. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is breathtaking promise because he's, He's demonstrating with such clear language this permanent way that has been opened up for you. This, this stairway between man and heaven that is Christ Jesus, that is permanent and opened to you. And it says it's open to people who need mercy and who need grace in time of need. Who are the only people that need mercy? It's us, right? Sinful people. I mean, the, the, our very tendency is when we are sinful is to avoid coming to God and avoid being around his people and getting out alone on our own because we feel the shame of our sin. And Jesus saying, I opened up this way for you so that you could come, not just wondering if I'll accept you or not, but because of his blood and because of how final his payment is, It says that in the midst of your sinfulness and in the midst of your guilt, you can draw near, it's breathtaking, with confidence. Because your access to God doesn't depend on you and on your behavior, but on the Christ who knows all of your weakness and never sinned. And he offered himself in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring you to God. And so we, we, we have to ask ourselves, are we giving him the reward of his suffering? Does he have us? Are, are we drawing near to God or are we just thankful that we have access and we can? And now the, the, the final section of this, is I just want to highlight these, these glorious truths about God, God's goodness to us in Jesus 
So I, I thought about titling this section, God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus, or the God of Jacob that Jesus brought us to. Because there are these breathtaking truths from this passage that we can see about God, but they are true for us because Jesus has brought us near to the God of Jacob. The first is that it is of God's grace that we are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's an actual quote from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He says, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an awesome truth if you see it. I asked Levi this last night, and he nailed it. I said, buddy, what's the significance of God coming to Jacob in a dream while he was sleeping? Why? You could come to him at any time. And Levi said, well, when you're sleeping, it's, you can't do anything, right? He came to him in the midst of not being able to do anything to earn it. It was a sheer act of God's grace. And I'm like, ah, glorious. A nine-year-old catches it because of a revelation of God. But this is so significant that God could have come to him in any moment. And just like God established his covenant with Abraham, he knocked Abraham out and had him laying down, passed out. And it was God who passed through the pieces because God is saying, I will be the one who acts in this covenant. And this is, this is a one-way covenant where I fulfill all the obligations of the covenant and you live in the benefits. And so he comes to Jacob in a dream when he was on the run in the aftermath of his greatest guilt. So in, in dramatic form, Jacob was dead in his sin. He was, he was asleep in the drama of death in his sin, and God came to him and made a covenant to him in the midst of him being dead in his guilt. And Jacob didn't strive to get God. God brought heaven to him, and it was all as a gift of his grace. And this, this stairway that God establishes is such a stark contrast to Babel, where mankind bands together to try to reach to the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves. And God God scatters them so that they can't do this thing. But here is God coming and building the actual connection between earth and heaven, not as a result of man's striving, but as a sheer act of his grace and his kindness. God came to Jacob not because of his posturing, but in spite of it. And in the same way, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And when we were dead in our sin, God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And this account with Jacob demonstrates that. It is of God's grace that we are in Christ Jesus, not of ourselves. Number two, God is all sufficient for our every need. In Genesis chapter 48, when Jacob is recounting his life as an old man to his son Joseph, he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz and blessed me. And in this name, God Almighty, it's so significant. It's El Shaddai. And this name carries with its significance, not just that God is mighty, but that he is nurturing and that he cares for his people. It, it literally has the connotation of like a, a nursing mother who provides and cares for his people. And so he's looking back over the contours of his life on the promises of God, and he says, 
God Almighty, at the end of his life, after seeing all of God's promises fulfilled, he's still calling him the, the all-sufficient one, appeared to me at Luz, and he blessed me. This name, El Shaddai, it shows us by God's own name that God is all-sufficient for every need that you have, that, that he is everything that you need. And I don't want to gloss over that. I don't want to blow past that because I want to bring that down to the ground level of our everyday life. And you just think about all the things that you feel that you need, the burdens that you carry, it's the financial stresses that you have. Maybe it's the emotional needs. Maybe it's psychological needs. And there are so many things that we feel like we need more than God that can easily lead us astray from a true pursuit of God. And his name, El Shaddai, is it's all sufficient. You have everything you need in God through Jesus Christ. And if you have him, you have everything you need. This is not... This is not just nice language. This is real for the ground level of your life. The writer of Hebrews 13 uses this truth to actually warn us against the love of money. Listen to this in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? So see these two things that the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's assuring him, one, of God's provision and of his protection just by his presence. He's saying, if you have God, then what do you need? Keep your life free from loving things that you think that you need in addition to God. He's promised he'll always be with you. And if he's promised he always will be with you, then what can man possibly do to you? He will protect you and he will provide for you, which leads right into our third truth about God that we see from this passage. He is our ever-present keeper. I love the truth that God is our keeper. It, it's one of the most comforting truths in the scriptures. I'm, I'm going to read you a couple of verses from Psalm 121, but if you're taking notes, I encourage you, write that down and go meditate through that psalm. But in verse 15, God promises to Jacob, I am with you. And will keep you. I will guard you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. And then Genesis 35, verse 3, Jacob looks at his family and he says, Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So you see just... Seven chapters later, as Jacob's looking back with his family, over 20 years later, he's saying, God has been faithful to this promise. He has been with me wherever I have gone. He has kept me and he has provided for me. And he has, and, and we have these same promises in the new covenant of God's presence where he has promised, we saw just now that he promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. But Jesus said, even in the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he says, I will bring you back to this land, to Jacob, which is so true for us in him that he will bring us safely home into the city of God, the ultimate land that has been promised to us. He is our keeper and his presence secures his will for us. So you need to know this. There are 
There are days when I know if it wasn't for the keeping of God, I wouldn't be a believer. And that's true for all of us. It's of God that you are in Christ Jesus, and it is of God that you are still in Christ Jesus. And he will not turn you loose. Jesus is so clear of all that the Father has given him, he loses none of them, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Listen to this from Isaiah 41, the the God who keeps you and who is ever present in his help to you. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, God says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, who I have chosen. Remember, you are now the offspring of Abraham in Christ Jesus. This is a promise to you. The offspring of Abraham, my friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In Psalm 121, he says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is vital that we remember this, especially in the coming days when persecution hits hard. You need to know that God is your keeper. And Jesus says, look, they're going to persecute you and terrible things will happen to you. But not a head, not a hair of your head will perish. Even if he allows you to walk through death, not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. But we will not endure unless we know it is God who keeps us. All of these promises come at Jacob saying, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And Jacob comes back and says, if you do this, if you do this, then I will. But before that, before Jacob ever started adding conditions and what he was going to do, God is just coming on hard with all of these. This is what I promise I will do to you. And I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've promised. Which brings us to the fourth and final truth that we see about God from this passage. I know there's a thousand that we could see here. But fourth, he is our faithful God forever. At verse 15, he says, I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised to you. All of it. His presence and his faithfulness will outlast our sojourning and he will be faithful to all the promises that he has made that belong to us in Christ Jesus. In Joshua 21, even at that time, they're looking back and they said, not one of the promises that God made to the house of Israel failed. Not one. He will not allow one word of his promises to you in Jesus to fail, which means he is now and he will save you to the uttermost because you draw near to God through him. This is so encouraging. If you think about all the people that have gone before us, some finishing well, some finishing terribly, some finishing off the track, and you don't even know if they actually ever knew the Lord. And you're looking at your present life. Maybe you're in the fourth quarter. Maybe you're at halftime. Maybe you have one day left and you have no idea. But how amazing that he's promised he will keep you now, through the end, for a faithful endurance, you hold fast to him. And he will keep you through death and bring you safely into his presence that where he is, you may be also.
So we have these breathtaking promises. He will finish the good work that he began in you. He will bring it to completion. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so meditate in the promises of God with a, with a reassured confidence that they are yours in Christ Jesus and that not one of them will fail. He will bring every single one of them to pass. He is all-sufficient for your every need, and he is your ever-present keeper who is faithful forever. So how should we respond to this? I've been praying for believers and non-believers alike that maybe you came in and you've just been walking with God and you came in fully expectant to hear from God. And I'm so thankful to God if you're in that place. It is his grace if you're in that place. Many people walk into this place just desperate for a word. Just deciding, some are watching online because they didn't feel worth it to get up out of bed and to come this morning. Some came, but it was, it was a decision. It was a game time decision and you ended up here. And in the, the midst of all of that, God comes here and he speaks to us by his word. And I've been praying all week that we would come here unawares, coming asleep like Jacob, and that he would wake us up and we would say, God is in this place. And that he spoke to us and reveals himself to us afresh, see Jesus afresh as the one who came, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, and that we would give him afresh the reward of his suffering, that we would draw near to him with whole hearts and with full assurance of faith, and that we would live in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Not living in some far country because we don't know if our performance was enough or we don't know if maybe God loved us in the past when it seemed like we were walking with God in a more faithful way, but now it's, I just don't feel it the same way that I used to. Maybe God would wake you up outside of your feelings and say, like, it's not about how you feel. Repent and draw near to me. Remember your first love and do the deeds that you did at first and draw near to him, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of Christ who has atoned for you by his blood and is even now mediating for you by his own high priestly ministry. So maybe you're here, you're living in fear. Maybe you're on the run emotionally or physically and nobody knows it. Maybe you're running from God. I, I'm praying that today God would find you right in the place. He came right to the place where Jacob was and he opened heaven and he he invited him into relationship and brought him near. And so if you have a relationship with God in Christ, then live in that relationship. Live in the grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus and cease striving and know that he is God. But if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, then you need to hear me. Your sins separate you from a holy God and the, the terror that we would experience being in the presence of a holy God in all of our sin without the covering of Christ is unimaginable. And it is a fate, believer and non-believer. Listen, this is a fate of 
everybody who is outside of Christ Jesus in this town. And we need to be awakened afresh to this. The, the Lord's been awakening me just afresh to this, even in conversations with my dad, of there's just the need for a greater zeal for evangelism, a greater zeal to see our friends one to Christ. Because the reality is, he is the only way to God, and he died to bring near your friends to himself. He wants to rescue the lost. That's why he came. And we cannot allow what we see, the opposition that we see or the fear that we feel to override his desire to use us to seek and to save that which is lost and to see people enter into this covenant relationship that God has made available through this new and living way in Christ Jesus. And so if you've never placed your trust in Christ Jesus, know that Jesus invites you to come to him for forgiveness and life in a relationship with God. And we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like and any questions that you have. But here's my benediction to the church. And Elijah and Jordan, you guys can come back up. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll close with this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He, he will surely do it. He will not leave us until he's done all that he's promised to us. Amen. Father, we just commit ourselves to you afresh. We thank you that while we were dead in our sleep, just like Jacob was asleep in a dream, we were dead in our sin and unable to come to you, unable to get to heaven, unable to establish a relationship with you. You came to us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our guilt, and you made us alive together with Christ. So I pray, Father, for your church that we would live in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus and that we would pursue, pursue you with whole hearts, with the full assurance of faith, that we would not, having been saved by grace through faith, seek to be perfected by works of the law. God, may we rest in you and come with confidence because of the blood of Jesus into the presence. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is the stairway to heaven, the new and living way. And pray that we would live there. You're awesome, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.